1 Samuel chapter 7, starting uh, this new section. Now, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, here's what you need to know. Uh, as we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel, the scene, uh, the setting, if you will, is this. Israel has been in a bit of a hot, they've been a bit of a hot mess. They've been in trouble for a good number of years. Uh, the, the, the kind of time frame that happens immediately before the book of 1 Samuel, of course, is the book of Judges, in which there's all these different cycles of Israel saying that they're going to serve the Lord, and then they end up blowing it, and the Lord raises up uh, this deliverer to help save them. And this happens several, several times, and it cycles through, and eventually uh, we, it gets worse and worse as time goes by, and we come to the end of the book, and uh, we are told that everyone does what is right in his own eyes. No one's serving the Lord. No one is operating uh, in relationship with the Lord on the basis of the covenant. The children of Israel, uh, is, they're all serving you know, pagan gods and worshiping at other temples, and it's, it's, it's a horrible hot mess. And uh, they, we, we find the opening pages of the book of 1 Samuel, one in which the Lord is quietly raising up a deliverer, this, uh, this child, Samuel, who is a, kind of this miraculous baby that is given to this uh, woman, Hannah, uh, is the Lord's raising her up. And, and in the midst there's, uh, of the story, there's kind of this contrast that happens as the story pans to Samuel growing up and trying to serve the Lord faithfully, and then Israel trying to operate on their own, trying to go their own way and do their own thing. And it constantly shows that Samuel was faithful in serving the Lord, and he, was, he found favor in the eyes of the people and of God. And then we find that Israel, by contrast, is trying to do their own thing. They're going their own way, and they find themselves getting in trouble again and again and again and again. And uh, so much so that they have a particular instance uh, that happens where uh, they are facing some of their early enemies, the Philistines, this group of people who come up to fight against them. They are an organized group of people. They yielded uh, iron weapons and had protection, and Israel is a, basically a bunch of farmers, super lame fighters. They're not going to do well. They get destroyed. They lose about 4,000 people in their first battle, and they realize in the midst of this that uh, there's an issue, and, and the question that they ask, and it's the right question, they say, why has the Lord allowed this? Why has he done this to us? Why has he allowed us to, have, to suffer a severe loss of 4,000 people? It's the right question because... Because throughout their history, the Lord had always said, if you operate outside of the covenant, then you're going to suffer defeat. You're going to be oppressed by other nations. You are going to be uh, taken over. You are going to be enslaved to other people. But if you are in right relationship with me, then I will be your freedom. I will be the one who helps you. And so they're experiencing a defeat, and they ask the right question. Why has the Lord done this to us? It was meant to be an act that would pull them back into relationship with him when they saw, like, well, if we think about it for a moment here, we've lost because the Lord said we would lose if we tried to go our own way. But instead of asking the right question itself and pursuing that truthful answer, they instead say, Okay, well, we're going to come up with our own way. We're going to figure out our own way to win. And so they have the brilliant idea of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They do so, uh, which was a horrible idea. And they kind of, it reveals that what Israel essentially is trying to do is to use God. They're trying to use him uh, to manipulate him to get what they want. We lost on our own. Okay, now we're going to bring God in because if God's name is on the line and it's his power and he loses, then he's going to look like a real chump to these other nations and he needs to defend himself. And so we can't, there's no way we can lose. And they bring the ark of God into battle, and they have a massive loss, 30,000. The ark is captured. Uh, these two sketchy priests who are the sons of Eli are killed. Eli ends up being killed as a result. Uh, one of the priests, uh, his wife, she ends up dying. Like just all this death comes as the result of trying to manipulate God to do what they want God to do. And I think that's what happens with us a lot of times when we get into the position, the place where we say, you know what, I've got a plan and I want the Lord to do for me what I have designed, what I want to do. I want him to come and to take my plans and, and make sure that they are successful. But that's not what the Lord does. He doesn't leave that option open to us because he knows that if we, that was allowed, then we would end up hurting ourselves. We would end up injuring ourselves. We would end up with death. Right? This is why 
why uh, in our modern age, like you just can't go out and like build your own house. There's building codes and there's ways that you have to install your electricity so people don't get killed, right? There's a particular rules and regulations that are in place to protect life. Those things are there so as to provide a home that allows you to enjoy and flourish in it, to find safety and security. But if you come with your own plans and you say, well, you know, uh, everybody needs to stay out of it. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get my own lumber and I'm going to run my own wire. Like, eventually, you're going to have some sort of house that is not going to withstand uh, the elements. It's not going to uh, be safe for the inhabitants. There's going to be something that you do not account for. Because you can't possibly be an all-knowing designer. You can't possibly be someone who is all-knowing, taking into account every aspect of building a house. You can't take into account every aspect uh, of, of crafting each section. You can't have mastery over all those roles. But this is how we deal with God a lot of times. We say, well, you, I'm not sure if you know God, but I do have mastery over all the roles, and I know how everything is going to go. So if you just kind of step out of the way, I'm going to give you the plan. And if you can just kind of provide the, the power to get it done, like I, I've accounted for everything. That's the attitude that we often have. But we see what happens here in, in the book of 1 Samuel. When the children of Israel come into battle with the ark, it's really revealing that they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really even know God. They shouldn't have been doing this in the first place. And as a result, there's this great uh, capture of the ark. And they are without the ark for a great period of time. And finally, the Lord defends his name in the land of the Philistines uh, with like this really nasty period of like rats and tumors. It's in chapter 6. Uh, and then finally, they're like, let's get this thing out of here. They send it back. Uh, the end of chapter 6 uh, ends this way. Uh, if you read it with me here in verse let's say, 20, chapter 6, verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So what happens is the Philistines drop it off in this city with uh, the children of Israel. The children of Israel don't know how to relate to God, so they do these dumb things. A whole bunch of people get killed because they're not, they pretend like they know God, but they don't really know God. Uh, and then they're like, okay, we got to get this thing out of here. Again, they're not willing to deal with God on the basis of how he said he would relate to them. They're like, we're going to come and we're just going to do what we want to do. And the result, again, is injury, death, it's, it's a problem because they are not relating to God correctly. And as a result, this ark has come and it's, it's uh, stored up in this city. Uh, Kiriath-Jerim, we look at 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1, we read this, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark of the, Lord, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So everything that's happened over the past, uh, uh, you know, 20 plus years here in Israel's interactions with the ark has been one where it's been quite negative. Every time they've tried to interact with the ark, they have experienced hardships and difficulties and death. And finally, after some time, finally, it seems that things have settled. They come to a place where this ark is now lodging in this uh, particular person's house, in this particular city. And we read these words. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They have this lament in their heart. They're mourning. They are sad. They, they, they are lamenting about what what has been done? What has happened? They spend this time cultivating a heart that brings about this, this appearance of change. But the scriptures tell us that they haven't changed. 
They haven't changed. It looks like they've changed. When you read that someone's lamented, that they're sad about it, that they have invested this time, there's 20 years have gone by, you would think like, okay, well, they're ready to change. They've changed. They've become a different people. What we see is the classic, like, like, apology for getting caught, not the apology for what they did. That's what was really going on here. They're like, we're sad that we lost our friends. We are sad that we lost our colleagues. They're only sorry for what they're experiencing. They haven't cared to make changes or or bring themselves into a right relationship with the Lord. It's only the byproduct of that that they're sorry about. And sometimes, sometimes for us, this is what it looks like when we deal with the Lord. We kind of have this attitude where we're like, okay, like we see what you want us to do, God. We see what you're asking us to do. We see who you want us to be. And so like, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of say that I'm doing that. I'm going to have this attitude that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm on board. I'm participating. But what it really is, it's just kind of this false repentance. You're not really repenting. You're just kind of trying to make yourself feel better and make everybody else feel better. But you're not really getting to the heart of the matter. And I think we, all, we often get confused, especially when there's like an emotionalism that's connected to that. When, when we're at a place where we're having tears and, and we're crying and, you know, you have to grab the tissue box and you're just like, and you're, you're having this intense moment. Like that's when you're kind of like, oh man, it's real. It's really resonating here. But it's not that initial impact that is what matters. It's what happens after that initial impact. Has there been change? We all hear things and we can be impacted by them. We can be like, oh man, that is bad news. That is the state of my heart. That is who I am. But are you going to do something about it? Are you going to change? You see, Samuel, he sees straight through this and he calls Israel to true repentance. Look at verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. Here's the real deal. They're like, oh yeah, they're lamenting after the Lord but all the while they still got their idols and they're still doing their thing. Like they, it's only that that outward appearance. Like, oh yeah, you know, like we're really sad about what happened but there they are serving their idols. They haven't even cared to like Get rid of those things. And Samuel says, I see that in your heart of hearts, you have true idols. You have things that you are serving that maybe you aren't even aware that you need to get rid of. And so his word to them and his word to us this morning is that you have to get rid of the idols that are in your heart. You have to find those things that are taking your attention away from Jesus that are demanding your attention, those things that you feel like you have to do, those things that are pulling you away, those achievements or rewards that you're pursuing, those things all have to come under the, into the submission under Christ. Now, I will tell you, if you don't know what those are, if you don't know what those particular idols are in your life, the thing that's in your mind that you're like really mad about right now and you don't want to think about, that's what the thing is. The thing that you're just like, well, I don't have to get rid of that. Or you're trying to find a way to, to fight against it. That's the thing. The thing that you're not happy about right now, that's the thing that you need to like deal with. We all have them. Every day, we have to fight these things again and again and again because we want our way. We think we have the best plan. And so when people say, you can't do that, and even in that moment, our idols are ourselves. Where we're like, well, you can't tell me what I can't do. Because I'm in charge. But if we were seeing correctly, if we were seeing rightly, we would say, you said that I can't do that. I'm not sure if I can do that, if I should do that, but I don't take my own orders. I come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and where he tells me to do, I'm going to do. And if it doesn't look like it's possible, he's going to make it possible for me to do what he's asking me to do. And so if you're saying, I can't do that, but he says, I can, then I'm going to do what he tells me to do, and it will be successful. 
But too often, we end up defending ourselves and trying to, to jockey for position internally. To prove other people wrong. Like, well, you can't tell me that. Or maybe we do let them come in and say those things when we just think like, oh, they're haters. I'm going to show them. When you have that thought, like, I'm going to show them, you're trying to, you're enslaving yourself to that person. Your life then becomes a focus of proving that person wrong. And so as free as you feel to do whatever you want, your, your life has become about trying to defeat this other person's perception that they've placed upon you. We fall into these things so easily. And Samuel here, he sees straight through it. He's like, don't come at me with like these false, this false repentance. He calls for true repentance. He knows that there's something deeper. He's thinking in the back of his mind to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 8, where the Lord is making this covenant with his people and, is, and it's having the, the, this contingency of obedience and the blessedness of obedience and he's speaking into where uh, it's written this you shall obey the voice of the lord and keep all his commandments that i command you today the lord your god will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground for the lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the lord your god to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There's this connectedness of blessing coming out of obedience. Blessing coming out of obedience. Now, before we go off too far down like the whole path of that, we're just going to have a little apologetic sidebar here and say this. He says here, uh, if you obey the voice of the Lord and keep all the commandments that I obey you or that I command you today, then the Lord will, Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous, right? We think about this in terms of prosperity that is connected to wealth, which could essentially be true in some aspect as he's saying here. But as you think about it, to experience this prosperity is connected to obedience to all the commandments of the Lord, which include being a wise financial steward, which include uh, care for the poor, for the immigrant, uh, rightly relating to others. So you're only entrusted with this prosperity if you are somebody who has cultivated and developed a heart that is aimed at sacrificing and giving. The goal of your resources increasing is so that you might be a blessing, not so that you might receive more and enjoy more. Jesus said as much in his parable of the talents. If you get a little bit, you've learned how to steward over a little bit, I'm going to give you a little bit more. But if you don't know how to steward over that little bit, like, no, you haven't been faithful with that. So be faithful in the little things and he will increase your lot. Not for your own glory, not for your own benefit, not so you can upgrade from a 55-inch TV to the 80-inch TV, but that's so you can find a way to use those resources he's given you to serve others, to meet others' needs. So there's an attitude, a connectedness here to obeying all the commandments of the Lord. You're not coming to God to get things. You're not coming to God to know him and to enjoy him and to obey him so that he gives you things and gives you these prosperity and blessing. That's not the goal. It's so knowing him. Joshua chapter 24, verse 23. Samuel likely has this in the back of his mind where there's this great dilemma that's put before the children of Israel. This is this passage, you know, this uh, famous section where uh, Joshua is saying, choose this day whom you will serve. And he says this. He, he puts this charge out to Israel. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. This call that is put forth by Samuel and here, or by Joshua, here in this text, Samuel puts forth this same call. He echoes these same uh, sentiments. And he says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away your foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. They're looking for prosperity. They're looking for, you know, both in a... Uh, 
from a uh, lineage perspective because Ashtoreth is this Canaanite fertility goddess. So they're just like, when family is everything and family is riches and, and family, like having a large family is a big deal and status, they're like, pow, we're worshiping at that altar. We're trying to increase. More than that, we also find that the children of Israel are also worshiping this other god, this other Canaanite god, uh, Baal, which basically is supposed to be like this counterpart, Baal and Ashtoreth go together, like one's fertility in this aspect, and then uh, Baal is, he's kind of like this storm god. So it's kind of like they're looking to increase their lineage, their family, but they're also looking to increase their crops. They're like over the weather, looking to see like uh, fertility of crops and cattle and increase. This is all about riches and, and not needing, you know, the gods to be independent, to do things their own way. And so here they're called away from both of these things to make a difficult call to say, these things that you think are going to benefit you, that maybe you even enjoy, I'm calling you out of them to repent, to turn away. This is a type of repentance that is demanded by God. That we get rid of things that are taking our attention away from him. Because he knows that he's the only one that can meet those deepest needs of our hearts. And, and really, it seems like this is a kind of a, a, a little bit of a complicated, uh, like, historical ask when you're looking at, like, the types of gods that they're serving and, you know, their situations. But, it, but it's really, like, it comes down to, like, the first commandment. It's like, that's all it is. You shall have no other gods before me. Pow, they failed. They're serving somebody else in any way. They've developed these gods that they are serving, and, and so they've failed at this very first commandment. And all Samuel's doing is saying, hey, let, let's just circle back to the beginning. Because you haven't even failed like further down the line. Like you just, the base commandment, you're not keeping it. This is, where, this is what happens when we get involved with idols. We always break the first commandment when we break any of the other commandments. If you break any of the other commandments, you've broken the first commandment every single time. Because you're acting like God or you're serving another God. Now we get to the action. Verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And so here, all the people gather together. They have heard this call. It seems as though they are rightly dealing with the Lord. They're believing. They're ready to repent. And so they have this kind of ceremonial uh, ritual that it happens where they gather up all this water and then they pour it out uh, there on the ground. It's, it's meant to kind of symbolize this pouring out of the soul before the Lord. The psalmist uh, mentions this kind of attitude in several places. It's, it's, it's an idea of expressing your emptiness, your dire need to depend on God. Uh, and, that, and that's kind of why it's also paired with fasting. And so they're not drinking water. They're not eating food. They're coming in poverty of spirit. And so if you think about it, think about it this way. People who are, who are going through a spiritual battle are spiritually beat down, coming to the end of themselves. They're emotionally beat down because they have been processing all this and, and trying to remove these things from their lives, and now they are physically beat down. Like, this is probably the weakest group of people at this moment. And here, Samuel acts as the judge, calls them to repentance, and then the camera pans. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So here is the response. They see the people of God gathered together. They're there much like they had been earlier at a previous battle. And they say, oh, looks like a revolution's beginning. 
We better get over there and get on this. We better go and squash this. And so they come to attack. This is the Philistine response. Israel's response is this. They were afraid of the Philistines. <laughs> like that's what they got. Because they're unprepared for war. They're terrified. They're spiritually weak. They're emotionally weak. They're physically weak. They have nothing. They've emptied themselves out. They don't have strength to fight. Even if they did have weapons, they wouldn't have stamina. They haven't eaten anything. They don't have any water. This is like a worst case scenario. In earlier circumstances, they would have responded differently to this news. They would have said, all right, like, let's organize and let's, let's get together and let's come up with our battle plan and let's figure out what we're going to do. But now, things have changed. Now they turn their attention to the Lord. Look at what they say in verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The only weapon that they have is prayer. Now they come in poverty of spirit, recognizing that they cannot save themselves. They come recognizing that they will not be able to have victory. They come relating to the God of Israel, not on the basis of their own works or their own ideas, but they go to Samuel and they say, please pray for us. They have the right idea. They have the right execution. Now Samuel, he knows what to do. Because he also doesn't come and make assumptions and say, here's what we're going to do. He says, I can't even come and make this request unless I also come correct. Unless I also come in the proper way. Unless I relate to the Lord for the entirety of the people, to the entire nation, I cannot have this communication unless we do things correct in the proper way. And so, verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel knew that the only way he could approach the Lord to make this request, to fight for the Lord to, to intercede on, on behalf of these people, that the Lord would defend his people, would be on the basis of the shed blood of a lamb. He knew that this was the only way he, would, he could come. And so he makes this sacrifice. He prepares the sacrifice. And he goes and he makes his prayer. Now, I love this. Because it demonstrates the Lord's heart. It demonstrates the Lord's heart. Too often, when we approach the Lord in prayer, we just think like, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of throw one up there and like hopefully he hears, hopefully he cares. Like hope, hopefully like we get some action. But the way that this is described is that the Lord is there waiting to hear from his people. Like, please talk to me. I want to be in relationship with you. We don't realize that the Lord wants to hear from us when we are in our times of trouble and our times of need, when we have nothing going on, when we just want to shoot the breeze. He's there. He always wants to speak with us. This is the heart of the Lord. Look what happens here. Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And, the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. <laughs> like, it's like, he did this, the Lord answered. He cried out, the Lord answered. The battle hasn't even begun. There's nothing that has been done yet. He relates to the Lord on the basis of the lamb. And he says, here's the situation we're in. And God's like, I got you. Like, <laughs> that's it. No problem. There's an army still on the way. And Samuel has already received like, oh, like this has been answered. Like it's, the Lord answers right away. The battle was already won, even though it hadn't been fought, because the Lord had already answered. And so now they're just going to kind of stand there and wait for victory. It's a situation that we need to learn how to navigate, because what the scriptures tell us is that we have this same standing as Christians. 
that we belong to him, that we're in his family, that we can relate to him rightly on the basis of the shed blood of the lamb. But yet we're kind of still here like, um, what else do I need to do? Uh, there's like, I need to be like a good person. I need to do these sorts of things. We start adding these things. And the Lord's like, I already, I already answered. Like, it's already done. Like, the battle's fought. Like, you don't have to do anything. You just like, stay there. Chill. Like, know me. And then we look around at other people, and they're not doing anything, and they're chilling. And then we start to like, kind of get a little bit nervous. And we're like, hey, how come you're not doing anything? And then we start to put all these like, weird trips on people. And be like, well, you know, you got to keep all the rules and this. And we start like trying to manipulate everybody when the, when the truth of the scriptures tell us like our identity is in Christ. Like you, there's nothing that you can add to his work. You can't, you can't be more victorious than already victorious. Like you already have complete victory. You're already going to win. It's already there. It's already done. It's already finished. So you can't really add to that. There's, there's nothing to contribute. But yet, we find ourselves as people trying to do that again and again and again and again. Now, here's the cool part, right? We kind of get this behind the scenes of the prayer. But then, we kind of get now the, the camera back on the Philistines and what's happening. This is like the epic part because the Lord answers and here's the answer. Samuel doesn't get like this word from the Lord. He's like, well, you're going to win. Like, that's not what happens. He doesn't get that. While Samuel's offering up the burnt offering. It's like not even done. Like he's still in the middle of his prayer. He's trying to, to approach on the blood of the lamb. The Lord is eager to answer. Verse 10. Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar like Samuel's, Samuel is just like beginning his sacrifice and all of a sudden like they already won it's this attitude of relating to God in the right way by the shed blood of the lamb the blood is shed pow it's already confirmed. And it's confirmed by the Lord enacting his work that this sacrifice is received. A mighty sound. Now, the crazy thing about this is it's like it's what he promised to do so long ago. Like this, this, this was not like a surprise, like, oh my gosh, what happened? Like we didn't expect this. They should have expected this, right? Here's a, here's a couple passages for you. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 7. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you. Verse, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. That attitude is like a, the, the seven ways isn't just like they're scattered the crazy. It just means like you're going to have a complete victory. Like it's just going to be this massive defeat, right? But then if you even go back just a couple chapters into Hannah's great prayer, she responds to the Lord's faithfulness of raising up, uh, you know, Samuel for her, giving her this wonderful child. In Hannah's great prayer in chapter 2, Here's what she prays. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. She's like, literally, is like, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> they shouldn't have been surprised. Hannah had known it. But it's a crazy interaction. What's happening here is the Lord providing a defeat for uh to, to the Philistines so that the children of Israel can be safe, the Israelites can be, um, have security. But more than that, he's bringing a definitive defeat to the gods of the Philistines. There's a dispersion of the Philistine people, so there's not this opportunity to worship Ashtoreth in the same way. More than that, we also find this thunderous sound uh, to be a demonstration of God's power over this storm god, Baal. He's just like, crushing his, his people. He's just out there defeating everybody. And Israel hasn't done anything. They're just kind of like sitting around watching like Samuel sacrifice. 
Here's the result. The Lord brings a great defeat to the Philistines. Israel enjoys a great victory, not by their own hand, but by the work of the Lord. Israel receives the blessing of a victory by relating to the Lord rightly. And now we find the most pivotal mark in the story and and for uh, Israel. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, tell now, the Lord has helped us. So Samuel, he comes and he's like, yo, I've found like a massive rock, like this huge stone, and uh, we're going to like drag it to this like particular area we're going to kind of set it up as a memorial here a monument of sorts uh, probably somewhere west of Mizpah and we're going to call this thing Ebenezer uh, which he kind of translates here and or kind of gives a little bit of background of the meaning till now the Lord has helped us this great stone represents the Lord's help. And that's literally what the word Ebenezer means there. Stone of help is what it means. Right? If you ever like, if we're ever singing, you know, Come Thou Fountain, you're like super confused about that Ebenezer line. Like this is what it's talking about. It's not talking about like the Christmas carol story with Charles Dickens, like the like really mean Ebenezer Scrooge guy. Like this is like, uh, this is what it's talking about. Right? Here I raise my Ebenezer, my stone of help, my stone of remembrance, saying, thus far the Lord has helped me. That's, that's what it's getting at there. Right? So sing with confidence next time, not like this is weird, but like I'm used to it. And, and here as we come to this moment, what's happening here is that Samuel is bringing out a massive stone, one that would be a monument, one that the people of Israel will pass for generations to come. That will speak, that will speak to the Lord's work. This is how he describes it. Until now, the Lord has helped us. It's a great description because what it does is it looks back. It looks back as a record of his faithfulness. And when Samuel says this, he's not just saying, like, the Lord helped us win this battle. Of course, he is saying that. That this is a marker, a monument for all the people of God who will communicate this story that the Lord has helped us win this battle. But he's looking back even further. He's going back all the way to the beginning. He's saying, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, right? Moses delivering the children of Israel. The Lord has constantly been faithful to us and, and he has brought us to this point. He has been faithful to us. And so we can look back We can look at this beyond our journey and walking through life and living in this area. And when we come to that, we're like, oh, yeah, I remember that battle. And if he helped us with that battle, we can take we can have confidence because he has helped us rescuing us from Egypt. He's helped us, you know, with Abraham and Isaac, like the whole trajectory of God's faithfulness is highlighted. But it also it's a stone that helps us look to the future. Because it's not just what God has done, it's a record of his faithfulness so that you can have confidence in what he will do for you. It's there as a record of his past faithfulness, which should then become the foundation of hope in his future work in our lives. His past faithfulness is the thing that we count on. That he has been faithful and he's never failed, and so he will continue to be faithful. He will continue to be with you. He will continue to meet your needs. This is what Samuel sets up. So that God's people who have just been coming out of this season of repentance, of changing, if they're ever in a position to doubt God's goodness, if they're ever in a position to say, well, you know, I might go back to those other things, they can look to the stone of remembrance, the stone of help, and say, there it is. There it is. He has helped. He was faithful. 
when we were a weak people, when we were spiritually weak, when we were emotionally weak, when we were physically weak, when we were sitting ducks there, we did nothing, but we related to him on the blood of the lamb and he helped us. This is what he's, he's putting in place. He's laying this monument out Not so people just look back to the past, but so that it inspires them for the future. The Lord brought a comprehensive defeat here. And they would need this reminder because the Lord was faithful to keep his word. And part of his word was that these people wouldn't be bothering them. So in verse 13 we read, The Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So he was just like, Samuel's related to me rightly. Pow, all the Philistines are out. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And, the, and Israel delivered their tor- territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So Samuel, he just relates to the Lord on the basis of the blood. He stands in the gap for the people. He's not a military warrior. He's not a conquering ruler. He's not a king. He's there leading faithfully from the basis of his relationship with the Lord. And the result is that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises. There's peace between Israel and the Amorites. Like there's like not even war that's happening. And Samuel's not like this great military threat, like, oh yeah, we got a super sweet army now. There's, there's nothing that brings this sort of like deterrence to the surrounding nations. They're not like, okay, well, we can't mess with Israel now because like they've got like great firepower. It's the Lord who is sustaining. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and, he also, and there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. And so we see Samuel was faithful all his life. He served the Lord by traveling on this annual circuit uh, to these cities that were in the Benjamite territory, which is kind of like an irrelevant note at the moment, but will be important in the next chapter. Uh, but his ongoing work wasn't just like, hey, I'm just cruising around, like making these like weird judgment calls between people. But he was there trying to keep Israel on track, calling them to repentance, giving them counsel, coaching them on how to relate to God rightly. And then he would come back to his home, right? And I love how this is, this is described because this is what we need to understand as God's people. He doesn't out there doing things, just doing things for God. His home base is described here for us in verse 17 he would return to Ramah for his home was there and there also he judged Israel he's like he was faithful at home he did the same work at home he didn't come back and be like yo like I'm off I'm on break here like I'm, when I'm out there that's where I'm doing the work we also find this he built an altar there to the Lord he made his worship life a priority. He's like, I got I to gotta be right with God first. Before I go and serve other people, before I go and do any other things, I got to be right with God first. And I'm going to serve other people out of the overflow of what God gives me. He relates to God on his own basis first. He has an altar, a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. He has a consistent relationship with the Lord. And then he goes out and he brings this call to repentance to the people. And the people would have seen the trajectory because they were there. So when he comes now, when he comes now on, and visits these cities, he could say, hey, like, I see the way that you guys are living. I've heard what's happening here. And, you know, you're starting to drift. You're starting to move outside of the bounds of what God has set in place. And I want you to remember. I want you to look back at the stone of remembrance. I want you to rem- remember that moment there when we were all gathered at Mizpah. And you were in trouble. You were emotionally spent, spiritually spent. You were physically spent. You had nothing left. 
And it's there in your desperation you cried out. You asked me to cry out to the Lord for you. And I didn't come on my own merits, but I came on the blood, by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb was slain. The Lord went to work and saved you. And we have that stone of remembrance. When you walk by it, see it, remember what the Lord's done. When I'm not here to tell you this, remember what he has done. Samuel would have to go through that process. That's what we all have to do with one another. Because like we are those people who are so tempted to drift. right? That's why that other line in the song, Come Thou Found, is not just, here I raise my Ebenezer, but prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? Because that's those that's those things how they how they relate to one another. Like we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. And so we need to look back and be like, oh, there's the stone of remembrance. We just get distracted. We find other things. We're like, oh, that looks cool. Let's go over there. The trajectory is important. It's set out for a particular purpose. The Lord put this same trajectory in place for us so that we might have confidence to walk in the truth of the gospel. We might have confidence to walk in in the hope of his return, that we might have confidence to walk in his faithfulness to us. As we have found ourselves as people who are in trouble, as people who are in sin, who people who are distracted with other things and are making idols, the call to repentance comes to you and I. That we ought to get rid of our idols and turn and serve the Lord wholeheartedly. But we have to go through the same process. And this is exactly why Jesus came. As he made his way down onto the scene, in, in his first public appearance, it was John the Baptist who makes the public declaration, which perhaps for some of Israel would have been a bit of a reminder to this moment, this past, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He makes this declaration. And we see that Jesus lives out that perfect life for us. He goes to the cross. His blood is slain. His blood is shed. He is slain so that we might relate to God rightly. The result of this death of Christ is that we are covered with his blood. And now we do not need a Samuel to relate to God with, a mediator in that aspect, but we relate directly to God on the basis of of Christ, of his shed blood. He went into that moment knowing that he was our only escape and that he was what we really needed. But as we said last week, Jesus differentiates himself from everybody else because he doesn't just do a good thing for people by laying down his life for others. He demonstrates that he is, in fact, the Son of God, that he is God himself, God incarnate through his resurrection. This is how Matthew describes it. Chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Matthew goes on in chapter uh, chapter 27 and verse 62, and he says this, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees were gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, 
You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. We go on in Mark's gospel. Verse six, or chapter 16, verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and, when, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. <laughs> That's so crazy. It's so crazy. The lamb is slain. He pays for the sin of the world so that we might relate to God correctly. We see this because we were on the other side of the cross. We see it clearly because we're like, yes, we see that you, that, that you saw into our greater need. As we looked at last week, the people of Israel there, they were all mad because they thought that he was coming to rescue them from the Romans. And they were like, oh, we're about to be free. You know, the, on Palm Sunday, they were having like this big party and waving their palm fronds. And like, they were just like, oh, we're about to just like slay these Romans. It's about to be crazy. They thought they were about to be rescued from the Romans. All the while, Jesus had this in his mind, like, I'm working on a bigger thing. I'm working on a deeper need that you have. He was moving at a different level, working on a bigger problem, one that we hadn't even considered. And it was the expectations of his people that confused them. And so they were likely to go off and go find something else. What, what happened there in that moment was they made an idol of Jesus. It was a different Jesus. They were doing something good, but they were like, oh, like we made you to be a different Jesus than what you really were. Now, here's the ironic thing. The chief priests and the Pharisees get it because they're like, yo, we need to protect this grave because remember what he said? Remember, like he said he was going to rise again in three days. So like we better like get, get a posse together and like mount up and make sure like we're protecting this thing. Whereas like his disciples, they didn't remember at all. They were just like, oh, he disappointed us. He wasn't who he said he was. And then later they had to be reminded about what he said. We've got one group who loves him, who don't understand and don't remember what he said. We have one group who hates him and they remember exactly what he said. And they are so worried about it, they're like, we have to make sure that this doesn't happen. Nobody's let off the hook there. One is made an idol of Jesus in one way. The other one sees him in a sense for who he rightly is. And they're like, we got to stop that because that's going to change what we're doing. That's going to mess everything up for us. They are the idol. We have our own way, our own plan. But we find that neither one of these groups can prevent Jesus from accomplishing his goal, from bringing us into right relationship with him, from relating to him rightly on the basis of his own shed blood. He was crucified for our sake. He went into the tomb. Matthew and Mark, I don't have time to go into another passage, but they all note here that Jesus is laid into this new, clean tomb. And it's of note here that we find in every single passage there's a great stone. A great stone blocks the entrance to the grave. Mark tells us specifically that there was concern from those who first came to the tomb early that Sunday morning. They were saying, who's going to roll the stone away? Who's going to roll it back from the entrance? Now, as you look back at the historical record, what you see is that this stone was actually probably about two tons and it was built on an incline. So that it was kind of like one of those things where Indiana Jones is out. You like pull the thing and it like rolls down like, like in, front of the, in front of the entrance. And, and, 
And the goal, of course, was to kind of seal it so grave robbers couldn't come in and, uh, and take things that would potentially be buried with the body and also to kind of make sure that the smell wasn't getting out. Kind of dual function there. But these women, they have a particular concern. They can't get in. But they come, they come, they show up. In verse 4 of Mark 16, they look up just as they're having this concern. Just in the moment where they're like, what are we going to do? We're doing the right things. What are we going to do? They look up immediately. And they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Hyphen. It was very large. Like, who just randomly throws that in there as like a side note? It was very large. You see, the stone there was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out. Like, he could have just gone through, like, the tomb and he resurrected. The stone was rolled away so that way people could get in and see the evidence that he had risen. He could get, they could get in and see that he was alive, that he wasn't there. It was rolled away and pushed back so that those people could come and see the evidence of his faithfulness. He said he would rise. And here's an angel saying, why are you looking for him here? He, he's alive. He's not among the dead, but he's among the living. And she's like, look, come in, inspect. He's not here. You see, these people, you and I, once operated in this same way. We built upon the certainty of death. Like there was nothing, like that was not an expectation that anyone had because it was like, yep, yeah, death is for sure happening. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be here. Nobody expected this. Even though Jesus said it, he's flipping the script entirely. But Paul tells us we build not on the certainty of death, but on the certainty of life, on a new foundation. We end with these two verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. As we come into relationship with Christ on the basis of his own blood, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so we find the continuing pattern that we find in 1 Samuel. A desperate people who have a desperate problem. A lamb that is slain, shed blood, so that we might relate to God. Our problem solved by the resurrection of Christ. We are justified, made right with God through the resurrection. And Christ is declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection. And finally, we find that there is a great stone. A stone of remembrance. A stone that is pushed away so that we might see that he is risen. We can look back at that stone. And we see that in the New Testament, as Paul continues his theology, that that stone the stone of remembrance is Christ. Up to this point, he has helped us. He has helped us. And so the stone that is Christ, the cornerstone, directs us to look back at our sin, what he saved us from, that we are dead in our trespasses. But it also causes us to look back at our sin and realize that when we were his enemies, that Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. He demonstrated his love toward us. That when we were far from him, he shed his blood for us. But it also causes us to look forward to that future. That he is that stone of help. That sure foundation. Our rock, our fortress, our defense. A stone that cannot be moved. 
a foundation that we can build our life upon and a foundation that can be trusted, that is faithful and true. And so it is that as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, again, we get another glimpse of the glorious Son resurrected in power. Not just giving us confidence about our past, but giving us hope for the future. As we have been resurrected with him when we trust in him for salvation. So let's pray together and we'll worship the risen Lord. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your love for us. We pray that you would uh, inhabit the praises of your people now as we respond. Thank you for... for your work. Thank you for changing us and transforming us as we trust in you. And Lord, we want to look um, we want to look at all that you have accomplished on our behalf. We want to say thank you. We want to say that we love you. We're thankful that your blood was shed. We're thankful that you have resurrected. We're thankful that we can have confidence in your work because you have demonstrated your faithfulness. You've never failed. You've never failed a single person. And Lord, you're the only one, the only person that we ever need. You're the only one that can truly satisfy us and will not disappoint us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Work in our hearts, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.